invite you to turn this morning to the Song of Solomon, Song of Solomon chapter 4, find Isaiah, work back from there, Song of Solomon chapter 4. There's one other announcement, and that's to do with the book room as well. There are cookies that need to be baked for the uh, Generations Boys Home, I think it is. Um, There's a sheet there. If you can help with the baking of those cookies, um, that would be very much appreciated. I think it's for um, two two weeks from today, perhaps. So the details are on the sheet there uh, in the book room. I printed it off, um, did what I was told to do, and then forgot to announce it. So there you are, if you can help with that. But there's many things that need help at this time of the year, different ministries and special efforts and trying to make the most of the opportunities that the Lord has given to us. And if you can help in some way, it would be very much appreciated with all the various little things that we seek to do to be an encouragement and to further the cause of Christ as the Lord gives us opportunity. But as we've been doing throughout the most of this year, we As we come to observe the Lord's table, we take the Song of Solomon for our meditation, uh, considering it, just going through the verses that are before us. And we've come to chapter 4, and we're going to be considering, God willing, the opening seven verses of this portion. We are looking here at the beauty of the bride, the beauty of the bride, and we've been singing about it and what the Lord has done for us. And as we read this text, let us rejoice and think on these things as we prepare our hearts to sit at the table in just a matter of minutes. Song of Solomon, chapter 4, reading from verse 1. Behold, thou art fair, my love, behold, thou art fair. Thou hast dove's eyes within thy locks, thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing. Rav, every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Thy temples are like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. Thy neck is like the tower of David, builded for an armory, whereon there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. Thy two breasts are like two young roes that are twins, which feed among the lilies. Until the day break, and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. Amen. The Lord bless the reading of His Word and prepare us to receive it as it is preached in just a moment. Let us pray seek the Lord. Our God, we desire to commune with Thee today. Our hearts have been lifted to consider various things already as we have prayed and sang together and read the Word. And as we approach the table of the Lord, this is to be a time of of consideration, a time of 
contemplation. We pray that our minds will be directed not by our own hearts, but by the Word and by the Spirit. We pray that each child of God would be edified. We pray, O God, that Thou wilt draw near. If there be those that are downcast and weary in the battle, we pray that they may be encouraged and strengthened. If there are those that are careless, we pray that they may be corrected. And whatever the condition of the heart, whatever the need of the soul, meet that need, we pray. Feed the flock, O God, give the medicine that we need, and cause our hearts today to be truly lifted, lifted up, to behold the Lord. Give help to this preacher now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been going through the book of the Song of Solomon, I have deliberately left out some of the more difficult aspects of the book, deliberately focusing upon the main uh, theme of the book in regards to what most uh, reliable commentators focus upon, that is the relationship between Christ and His church. I've done that because we're coming to the table of the Lord, and I don't want our minds filled with a plethora of different interpretations, whether this is allegory or not, we dealt with that already and argued that from the beginning, but whether or not, even if you consider it an allegory, is it based on a real event, or is it just something that is poetic? Other discussions about how many people are the key characters? Is Solomon an honorable man in this book, or is he the one who's coming to try and steal away the bride from the shepherd? All of these things, these are discussions that men have in relation to the Song of Solomon, and perhaps it is the most difficult book in some ways in all of the Old Testament to be dogmatic about in relation to some of the discussion that surrounds this book. But as I've said, most of the reliable men, they focus upon the main thing, which is the book is designed to reflect the relationship between Christ and His people. And so that has been our focus over these months as we've come to the table of the Lord, because through the imagery of the Song of Solomon, that's what we want to see. We want to see that communion. We want to see it expressed in the language that is given. And while we're very much detached from some of the scenes, and we don't live in the setting in which this took place, we don't understand always the, how familiar they would have been to words that are used in various agrarian references and so on. We don't live in that world. We're not quite there. And so sometimes it's more difficult for us to really grasp what's going on. But nonetheless, nonetheless, we can learn from it. And if we allow Scripture to be our guide, if we allow Scripture to interpret Scripture, that is safe ground to make some of what some would say are our assumptions in regards to the interpretation of the text. In this portion that we've come to, the beginning of chapter 4, the bridegroom speaks with great affection and admiration towards his bride. And it is legitimate praise. You can see from verse 1, Thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. And then again in verse 7, Thou art all fair, my love. There is no spot in thee. There is an, an affection towards her that recognizes her fairness, her beauty, and appreciates the various characteristics that are then highlighted in the midst of this portion. Now, when you read this and you see the focus upon the physical, at least in the, the description that is given, of course we're considering how it will reflect to the church, but 
it made me think about the, the obsession that we have in relation to beauty and appearance. And I'm sure it's been a problem that has existed throughout every century, this consideration of, of beauty, comparisons with one another, and so on and so forth. But I think the danger of the day in which we live is that there has never been in the history of the world the accessibility to seek to gratify that, that obsession like today. That people can continually obsess over what beauty is or how one can make themselves more beautiful. And they, they can constantly give themselves to this. Many of the things, and, and perhaps some of the, the, the more mature here this morning, you aren't really in touch with what the young people are doing and what they're looking at and the various social media things that they're looking at. At times I have to say, I feel a little bit uh, separated from where they are as well. Uh, but at the same time, you, you hear things and you see things and you, you, you have your ears somewhat to the ground and you, you get to understand that there's a lot of focus upon those that are apparently beautiful. We have a whole range of new celebrities that have come to the fore through social media, especially uh, vehicles like Instagram and so on, where people become influencers. They've never done anything. They've never achieved anything. Even when you think of, you know, not that long ago, we, we get obsessed about sportsmen and sportswomen. And you, but you're heralding that such people at least for some measure of achievement. But now we have these influencers, people who are followed, people who are every move they, they record and document and people are watching them all the time. And, and they've done nothing. They have done nothing except that they have a certain beauty, appearance, and a way of, of kind of garnering a following. And you have businesses that are throwing their, 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 their whatever they are selling and trying to sell to others to these influencers. So they advertise them on their social media accounts and so people become aware of them and say, well, she's wearing it, therefore I should wear it. And I mean, these are not, again, multi-millionaires uh, multi in terms of those that have achieved something through media, singing, uh, film or anything. It's, they're, they're just no ones. They are essentially nobodies who apparently have a certain beauty and attractiveness that some people get carried away with. And it's an obsession. It is an obsession. And I, and I fear the influence and the, the mental uh, impact that it has upon our young people, not as they go through the normal comparisons of adolescents, but as they compare themselves to those determined to be the most beautiful in the world constantly, every day, comparing themselves and what that must do to the psyche of an individual who recognizes that they are not like those that they admire and perhaps even idolize. It's having negative consequences of that, there is no doubt. And this obsession is a very, very dangerous one as we see it. And really, when you come to this portion, what I was thinking about is what really matters is not the broad appeal, but who says what about us. It doesn't matter what is said about us so much as who is saying it. And what really matters when it comes to the Christian is, what does the Lord say about me? Not the world. And it doesn't matter what the world says or what their consideration is in relation to you, and especially how they, they value certain things and they, they measure certain things and they, 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 they find a weight in things that, especially appearance, they find a great weight in that and, and they, they, they lift that up and exalt that as perhaps the most prominent and important thing to have. 
And then you, you, you put yourself against that and you fall short and you make yourself miserable. But when you come to the Word of God, the real thing that matters is what does the Lord say? And if we could only, and I trust we will help our young people, and as you see this obsession grow and advance and the distortion of, of, of how young people look at themselves, and I'm talking about young women and young men, it's not just young women, but they get grounded. And I trust in this congregation, we ground our young people in what really matters is, what does the Lord say? And when you come to Song of Solomon chapter 4, that is the comments that we're reading. We have the comments of the the bridegroom in relation to the bride, commenting on her beauty. And just like in a marriage, really, the bride does not so much care what the world thinks, but if she knows and is convinced that she has appealed to her husband, then all the opinions of the world fade away. It doesn't really matter. Now, whenever she says, how do I look? Of course, we... We know how to respond to that question. (laughs) When she says that, there's a sincere appreciation and value of the bride the Lord has given us. And our remarks bolster that sense of confidence that we truly value them and appreciate them. And then it doesn't matter what the world thinks. She is valued in the eyes of the one that matters. And so it should be for the people of God. If Christ loves you, if Christ finds you to be attractive, and I mean this in the right sense, then that is all that matters. And that is what we are brought to consider here this morning. The beauty of the bride. First of all, note with me, her beauty declared. Her beauty is declared. Verse 1, verse 7, we've already read over. Behold, thou art fair, my love. Behold, thou art fair. She is fair. This is how she is declared to be. It's not a matter of her valuing herself and trying to make some statement about herself. In fact, for the Christian, we never think of ourselves to be good, and we don't think of ourselves to have attained to something that would be uh, valuable or sufficient in the eyes of a holy God. We, we always are aware of our deficiency in terms of our, our, our beauty before the Lord. And yet, this is what the Lord says. Now, if you're here this morning and your, your sense of, appreci- of value before God, it comes about because of, of what you have done or what you've attained, then you don't understand the gospel. We were just dealing with it this morning with the, the college and career group with J.C. Ryle and what, what he said in his book, Holiness. He said, a right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. A right knowledge of sin lies at the root of all saving Christianity. And that's true. I mean, the the Christian, the genuine Christian, understands his sin. He's not running away from it. He's not denying it. He's not trying to, to, to veneer over it. He is very conscious of his sin. And whenever he thinks about his sin in light of the holiness of God, he, he does not appear to be attractive at all in his own view and estimation. If we do think ourselves to be valuable before God and have our own beauty before God established by our own good works, then that's self-righteousness. It's not the mark of the Christian. It's not the behavior or claim of the Christian. But at the same time, though we are very conscious of our, we might say, unattractiveness because of sin, 
Yet this is what Christ says, Thou art fair, my love, thou art fair. And in verse 7, Thou art all fair, my love, there is no spot in thee. And the language, particularly of verse 7, there is no spot in thee, is language of perfection. The bridegroom is proclaiming and pronouncing upon the bride an image of perfection. There is no spot in thee. Now that is not true of us in relation to our own experience. Outside of our standing in Christ, we have no claim to be like this at all. But this is the standing of the Lord's people. This this is what we come to enjoy, not by a process, not over time, but as soon as we place our trust in Christ, this is the standing, the legal standing that we have before God. That this is the position we have. This is the, the, the blessing and privilege that is ours. Those of us who trust in Christ by resting in Him, by trusting Him, by casting all of our hope upon Him, this is what is said. We are all fair. There is no spot in thee. When Balaam looked at Israel, we have a remarkable statement made by him in Numbers chapter 23, verse 21. When he says there, He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob, neither hath he seen perverseness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. This is a statement about Israel. That God has not beheld iniquity in them, neither hath he seen perverseness in them. Now, was there sin in Israel? There was there were many sins. They were constantly grieving the Lord in relation to their sin. But as they stood and as the gospel is reflected through the body of Israel, as the Lord reflects His truth through that body, this is the pronouncement, a, a statement that would never be made except the Lord has made it. He hath not beheld iniquity in Jacob. There was iniquity there. The sin was there. It wasn't gone away. But beloved, this is how He viewed them. In relation to himself as they trusted in him. Turn for a moment to Romans chapter 4. Because this gets to the heart of the gospel. And I don't want anyone ever to be in this place and misunderstand how one comes to enjoy such a position as this. How is it that we come to be viewed in the way that Song of Solomon chapter 4 presents How can it be said of you that there is no spot in you? How can that be said? And this is where we get to the heart of Paul's argument in Romans when he is presenting justification and how one is made right before God. And he is not basing it upon something that is new, something that has just come in the apostolic era or even from the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. As he presents the truth of how a man is made right before God, it is important for him to to base that upon the the Word of God in the Old Testament as well, especially for the Jews. The Jews who would argue that, no, no, it's not this. It's by the law. It's by our circumcision. It's by this, that, or the other. And Paul gets right back. And you read from Romans chapter 4. We'll just look at verses 4 through 8. He says, Romans 4, verse 4, Now to him that worketh is a reward not reckoned of grace, but of debt. In other words, if you've worked for it, then... It's not of grace, but of debt. You've, you've done something there for it. But to him that worketh not, but believeth. Now see the, the key verbs there. Him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted 
for righteousness. So how is a man made righteous before God? How is he found to be without spot? It is by his faith. His faith grants and credits to him a righteousness that has not been worked for. That is what Paul presents. And so he says, even as David also describeth the blessedness of the man unto whom God imputeth righteousness without works, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord will not impute sin. So, this is fundamental. This, this, I'm just looking here at the, the heart of Paul's argument here. As he presents, how is it that a man is made right before God? How is it that one is justified freely by God's grace as he is presented in Romans 3.24? How has this come to be? It is by faith. It is not by works. It is not by painting yourself up, as it were. It's not by some form of religious makeup. It is something that is gifted. Something that we have. Because the Lord has made it to be true through His own work. When you come back to Song of Solomon chapter 4, this is what we need to understand as we look at the language and description that is given of the bride here. It is not something that she has earned or is naturally there. It is something that she has because it has been given to her. It is an imputed righteousness. And you see that the difference this makes when she is considered fair. You see that there is this relationship that is there as well. My love, verse 1, thou art fair, my love. And we might just stop and say that only those that have the relationship with Christ, whereby he can say, my love, know this position and standing. You need to be able to say that the Lord is yours and you are the Lord's. And when you think about that, just stop for a minute and ask yourself the question, upon what basis do I make such a claim? Upon what basis do I say that I am the Lord's and he is mine? How do you argue that? What, what's the basis for that? How are you saying that? How are you reasoning it in your head? Is it, again, is it because you're simply sitting in church? I rehearse these things because I make no assumptions. I'm very aware there may be some that sit here, and, I, and I, I, I don't know exactly how you're arguing it in your mind, but you sit in church and you, you have all the appearance of belonging and yet, really, at the heart of it, there's no relationship with the Lord whatsoever. And so, this beauty here, this, this perspective that the Lord has of His people, comes about only be, to those that have the relationship, who, to whom the Lord can say, my love, my love. That you belong to Him. He belongs to you. The relationship is there. So we have her beauty declared then we consider her beauty described, and this is the heart of our message here this morning, where we will try to get through the descriptions that are given here. Now, as these descriptions are given, there are seven of them. And seven, as you well know, especially from the book of Revelation, uh, depicts perfection. And it reflects perfection. And, and so even there, in the symbolism of, of the, the, the number that are given, we have something of the perfection that is expressed in verse 7. There is no spot in thee. This is, is the perfect bride. This, this, this is not something that is, that is attained by physical beauty or natural 
something that is natural to you. This is not something inherent to humanity. And this is, this is why it makes no sense. It really makes no sense for us to see this purely in the carnal sense. This is spiritual. This is what the Lord is saying about His church based upon what Christ has done for His people. So her beauty described these seven things we'll try to get through as the Lord gives us help. And again, there's, there's difference of opinion in all of these. There's different ideas in relation to them, but I, I, I'll do my best and I trust the Lord will bless our meditation through this week upon this passage to your hearts. Now, again, the Christian doesn't see himself this way. I was reading George Burroughs, who's a 19th century American preacher, and he has a, a little book and publication on the Song of Solomon. And he, he said, about the Christian, he said, the growing conviction of our sinfulness attending growth and grace would create despondency did not our Lord give us assurances of His esteem. And those who are thus humble may be safely entrusted with these assurances without danger of being exalted above measure. End quote. I thought that was helpful because when you read this and you see how the Lord views His people, the danger would be that some would take this and say, well, here's how I appear before the Lord and it doesn't really matter then how I live. This is a standing that I enjoy. And then you, you take full advantage of it by, by giving yourself over to sin like it is a license to sin. But as Burroughs says, we, we grow in our conviction of our sinfulness. And while we grow in our conviction of our sinfulness, then we can be assured of the Lord's esteem. We can be presented with how we are viewed without becoming lifted up with pride or exalted above measure because of what the Lord says. So the first part that he draws attention to here is eyes. In verse 1, thou hast doves' eyes within thy locks. Eyes. Now, we made mention of this already. And here again we have this reference of doves' eyes. Now, eyes speak of vision. They speak of being able to see. And when you consider this is the bride, this is the church, you think about what are the eyes of the church? What are the eyes of the people of God? The eyes of the people of God is that instrument by which they are able to see the truth. When you read through the New Testament, you will find the Apostle Paul praying for the church in relation to their enlightenment, that they will be able to see more clearly and understand more clearly. It relates to the understanding. And here you have it put in this language, thou hast doves, eyes. And we talked about this already. The dove makes us remember and think about the Holy Spirit. And as you, you consider this, just, just very quickly considering it, these eyes are eyes being able to see the truth, but only able to see the truth because of the aid of the Spirit of God. And this is what distinguishes the bride from everyone else. It's what makes the church a separate entity from the world. Because the world cannot receive, neither can know, as Jesus said himself. The world doesn't understand. The world doesn't grasp. They can't perceive the truths that you perceive this morning. They don't see their own sin the way they see it, the way you see it. They don't see Christ the way you see him. They don't revel in the truths that you've been singing about, thinking about. And as we come to the Word of God, as you sit there with your Bible open, considering the Word of God, and your heart is craving to hear from Christ, that's not how the world receives it. They are dull. They cannot perceive it at all. The things that you rejoice in, they do not rejoice in. They don't get it. And this is what's beautiful 
in the eyes of the Lord, it is as how he sees this particular aspect, the eyes of the church. The eyes can see him, you see. The eyes grasp him, see him, perceive him, appreciate him. It is through the eyes that we stand in awe of our Savior and we understand what he has done, being enlightened in our understanding and again only by the ministry of the Spirit of God. This is, this is what he delights in. He loves it, child of God, when you can see him. It was the right thing for Moses to pray, show me thy glory. It was a good prayer. That's the kind of prayer that we can pray ourselves, knowing that this is the desire of the Lord. He, he wants us to see him. And this is a unique perspective and blessing and privilege that only the church enjoy, being able to see Christ. Secondly, you have her hair mentioned as well. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. And here you get to some descriptions and you begin to raise your eyebrow and you say, what? Her hair is like a flock of goats? That's maybe not exactly how you would describe hair if you were trying to say it in a nice way. If you were trying to uh, pass a comment that was not so nice, you might refer to someone in relation to a goat and their appearance. But, but this is used positively. And so again, we're detached from this. We're, we're detached from what exactly is going on. Gilead was a place of, of, of wonderful opportunity for pastures. And you read in the Old Testament about this. And, uh, we're, we're told in Numbers 32 that Gilead was a prime place for feeding. And here the goats are therefore in, a, in an opportune location. And therefore, they are the most privileged of goats. And so in their quantity and in their quality... They are, they are glorious. Thy hair is as a flock of goats that appear from Mount Gilead. This is as, it's not just any flock of goats. It's as goats that are in the most opportune location. And again, the goats of that part of the world often would have dark hair. And if you can envisage just the, the, the sunshine of, of the Middle Eastern sun glistening of the glossy black dark coats of these goats, that's kind of the imagery, the poetic imagery that has been given. That, that you can see the sun glistening of the hair and, and that, that kind of glory that, that reflects from, from hair in terms of its quantity. It's thick, voluminous, and, and, and it's, it has this shiny, healthy quality to it. And that's the imagery. Now, in like fashion it is of the church, we are told that hair does depict glory in 1 Corinthians 11 that glory that is to be hidden, especially in the woman. And so it's to be, because only in the presence of God is the glory to be given to him. But you think about this, you think about a, a healthy head of hair that shines in that way, and you, you think about what, is, what it has. First of all, you have the, the, the numeracy of it, the, the, how many, it's thick, and you, you know therefore that there's, they're all, there's many of them. And if you think in terms of the church, and this is what I was meditating upon today, how does that reflect the church? Well, you see that there are many, many members within the body of Christ. And yet every single one of them are known by the Lord. Just as the Lord said in relation to our own, the hairs of our head, the very hairs of your head are numbered, he said. And, and, and you think about that in relation to the church, that the Lord knows every single one of them. And each one has its own beauty, but it is in the whole that the real beauty shines. 
It's not a one single strand. It's in all of them being together. And, and this, this is the glory of the church, not just in her own individual beauty of each believer, but when you bring every believer together and you collate them all, the real glory begins to reflect. Just, just like a head of hair. You see a strand there, you don't really see the beauty of it. doesn't matter how wonderful or healthy it might be, one strand of hair doesn't really emanate much glory. But when it's all together, collected on one fine head, then you see the glory of the hair. And so it was even for these goats. If there was only one of them, you wouldn't really notice them. You wouldn't see it. But with, with a whole flock of goats there that were all feeding on the same pastures, all as healthy as one another, and the sun shining off their, their coats, then you would see the glory of it. And so it is with the church, beloved. Our own beauty is not an individualistic beauty. It is a collective beauty. The Lord loves the collective bride of His people, all gathered together. And yes, they're all distinct, they're all different, and each one of them matters. They're all counted for. All the elect will be called in from every quarter of the globe. But the real glory of it will be seen in heaven when every single one is all brought together to sing praise to the Lamb. So he sees them all. He sees the glory of the church in this way, the real beauty of the church as she is collected together in his name. Then we have the teeth. This is the third part that is commented upon. Verse 2, Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn, which came up from the washing, whereof every one bear twins, and none is barren among them. They're likened, that is teeth, to sheep that have been shorn, washed, and are fruitful. In other words, they are perfectly shaped. That's why they're shorn. They are clean and they are healthy. This is what you look for on teeth. They're shaped in a certain way. They're clean and they're healthy. Well, he likens their teeth then to these sheep that are shorn, that have come from the washing, and they are fruitful. They are healthy because they bear twins and none is barn among them. John Gill and John Trapp think that this speaks of gospel ministers. Both of them actually reflect from Jewish commentators and their understanding of the Song of Solomon, looking at the Levites and the priests here in relation to the teeth. Um, John Gill says this, and I say this just for your own consideration. Gill says, Teeth are bony, solid, firm, and strong, sharp to cut and break the food and prepare it for the stomach all which well agree with ministers who are strong in the Lord and in His grace, to labor in the word and doctrine, to oppose gainsayers, withstand Satan's temptations, bear the reproaches of the world and the infirmities of weaker saints, and remain firm and unmoved in their ministry, unshaken by all they meet with from without and from within. They are sharp to rebuke such as are unsound in the faith or corrupt in their morals, and to penetrate into gospel truths, to cut and rightly divide the word of truth, and break the bread of life to others, and so chew and prepare spiritual food for souls. End quote. So they see the spiritual leaders here in relation to the teeth. But I'm more inclined to think of it as that which signifies how the church is strengthened. Teeth have a purpose. They're used so that we can digest what we put in our mouths. We have a very limited diet when we do not have teeth. But when we have teeth, we're able to eat the things that are best for our strength and nourishment. 
And the best thing for our strength and nourishment spiritually is the Word of God, the meat of the Word. And it's through teeth whereby we are able to digest that. So, so really the teeth reflect that which is used to take the Word of God for our benefit. Being able to be strengthened and sanctified. And this is what makes a difference in our lives. You see how the sheep, thy teeth are like a flock of sheep that are even shorn. That is, they, 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 they cut off the old life. The old stained life is removed and they are now perfectly formed and then they come from washing so they've, they've been washed and completely cleansed and then they are, are fruitful. And what a picture of the Christian life. That through the instrumentality of the Word of God, it begins to help us remove and cast off the old man with his deeds. And we shore ourselves of the old way and we are washed with the water of the Word. And then we become fruitful because herein is our Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so shall you be my disciples. And we do that by, as you see in the context of John 15, doing what the Lord has called us to do, obeying His Word. So you see that imagery here of, of, of the church. Thy teeth are like a flock of sheep. You can see the beauty there, but it's reflecting that which is used to feed the church. Yes, it may be ministers, but I think you can broadly use it in relation to all the people of God, that which we use to help us digest the Word that helps us remove the old life, wash us from our sins, and become fruitful to the Lord. Then we have the lips in verse 3. Thy lips are like a thread of scarlet, and thy speech is comely. Lips like a thread of scarlet. The redness, of course, is being spoken of. And we've mentioned scarlet before. Scarlet speaks to us of the blood of Jesus Christ. It was a scarlet thread that Rahab put out of her window to seek deliverance at a time of judgment upon the city of Jericho. And... When she gets delivered, that, that was a sign. It was that, sign, that red scarlet thread that she put out. And, and that reflects the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The, the, the redness showing the grounds upon which deliverance comes. And here we have, of course, her lips are like a thread of scarlet. What's it speaking about? Well, lips, of course, is that, that organ by which we speak. And, and this is how we are to use our lips in the church. The, the church uses her lips to speak of the gospel, to speak of the blood of Christ, to speak of the cross, to speak of the finished work, to reflect to the world that which really matters to her. And so then her speech is comely. Of course it is. He hears what she's saying. He, he hears how she's using this organ of the mouth, the, the lips and her speech. He, she's using it to magnify the grounds upon which she has been made to have this beauty. She is talking about the gospel. This is what the church does. This is unique to the bride of Christ. She, she speaks of the shedding of the blood. She speaks of the cross of Christ. She speaks of His finished work in such a way that she magnifies the finished work of the Son of God. The world listens on. And then we have the cheeks, or as it's translated here, temples. Thy temples or like a piece of a pomegranate within thy locks. It's translated temples, but nearly every commentator I look to 
saw it as the cheeks. And of course it makes sense. It's a piece of pomegranate. You know what a pomegranate is like. The redness of it. And it's a piece of pomegranate. It's not a whole one. So you can imagine it one sliced in half. And it's reflecting the, 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 the redness of the cheeks in her appearance. And of course when you think about that, you think about the redness of the cheeks, you, you ask, well, why, is her, why are her cheeks red? Why? Why is she reddening in the cheeks in this way? And of course, it's a sense of bashfulness that she has. A reticence, a holding back, a blushing perhaps even, in relation to the humility that she feels before the Lord. And mind, he's looking at her in this way, but she doesn't feel herself to be this way. She doesn't feel herself to have this beauty because of something she has done. She knows she has not done anything in relation to this. And yet, he looks at her and so he sees and notes this, this blushing, this humility in her countenance because she, she is reticent to, to receive any credit for what she has. Thy temples, thy cheeks are like a piece of pomegranate within thy locks. You can see the reddening there, a characteristic of those who know themselves to not be, not be in the standing because of anything they have done. This is the church. No glory to ourselves, no attention being brought to ourselves. We would rather the attention be on the Lord Jesus, but here he puts the spotlight on us and we blush. We blush at this standing because it's not something we have done ourselves. And then, fifthly, or sixthly rather, we have the neck. The neck is referred to in verse 4. Thy neck is like the tower of David, build it for an armory. Ron there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. What is this? The neck here depicts great strength. Why is the neck such strength here? A tower of David builded for an armory. So it's not just a tower, but it has a purpose. It has a military purpose. Ron there hang a thousand bucklers, all shields of mighty men. This is, this is where they store their armory. What is that? This is what the Lord sees when He sees the neck of the church. Beloved, the neck. The neck is the organ that joins the head to the body. The neck therefore reflects the foundation of it all. The foundation of our standing. Why is it? Why is it that we can be so bold before the Lord? Is it not because we understand what we have in Christ? And so whenever the, the enemy attacks us, whenever the accusations come, whether it be from without or within, whether it be sin rising up within my own life and it accuses me and says I am not worthy in any way or regard to be named a Christian, or though it be accusations that come from without that say, that call me to be the hypocrite that I am or make all these accusations, whether it come from the devil or the world or the flesh, it doesn't matter. But what is it that keeps us strong in the battle? It is my knowledge of my foundation in Christ. You knowing what you are in Christ is the foundation. That which joins you to Christ, the union that you have with Christ, the neck, that which upon the whole relationship swivels, as it were. You're joined to Christ. The neck, as it joins the head and body together, is the foundation upon it all. It is the righteousness of the saints. It is the work of Christ applied and received by faith alone. And this is how we stand against all the accusations that we face. 
When the world comes at you, what do you say? Do you say, well, I've, I've lived a good life? No. Do you argue before the Lord on the day of judgment that you should get into heaven because you prayed so frequently? What is the grounds? What, what do you have in the day of battle? You have nothing but your standing in Christ. That is it. The foundation of everything is your standing in Christ. Thy neck is like the tower of David builded for an armor. This is why we stand upright. The posture of the church is not slouched over. It is standing upright with a neck that is not hunched over in any way, but resting not in her own work, but in Christ's work. And therefore, all the armory hangs there. Every attack, what is the argument? Christ. All the opposition, what is the argument? Christ. Beloved, when you come to the table this morning, when you lament your unworthiness, when you think to yourself, I should not even be here this morning, what is the argument? It is Christ and His work. That's the only weapon that you have. It is the finished work of Christ. That is the neck. And everything else hangs upon this. It all is dependent upon this. The fact that you can rest in Christ. Beloved, this is it. It is foundational. It is fundamental. And it is where the armory is because it's the only argument we have. Can't argue. Well, though the devil would like me to avoid the table of the Lord, I come because I know I've been good this week. No, we don't have that argument. This union between the head and the body so often Paul uses to depict the church. The church being the body, Christ being the head. That union, the neck being that union is what makes the difference. So Christ would say, I give on to them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. Nothing can ever sever. So Paul writes in Romans 8, is it not? I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why? Because you're joined to Christ. And there the argument ends. There it ends. When all the accusations come, it ends right there. I am in Christ. Then the seventh remark that is made in terms of the description of her is found in verse 5. Thy two breasts are like two young roes that are twins which feed among the lilies. Breasts are the source of life and nourishment for the young. Especially before they have their own teeth and they're not able to do what we spoke about earlier in verse 2, digesting the word for ourselves. And this is the work of the church. The church is to have that which sustains life. It is to nourish her young, to strengthen them, to feed them, 
to seek the lost, those who are without the gospel, and to bring them the life-giving power of the gospel. God has not given the breasts of life to anyone else but the church. It is to the church she gives the commission to go out into all the world and preach the gospel. For she has the breasts that give life, that bring the gospel to dying sinners and perishing lost ones. And it's to the church that has given this nourishment to feed their young, the little ones that grow up within their ranks to nurture them in the word of God, to cause them to understand the fundamentals of the faith, to grasp the gospel in its most basic understanding. This is an encouragement to every, every worker, every person who labors and ministers and reaches into the world in some form or other. This is an encouragement to every Sunday school teacher that you're part of the, the breast of the church, giving life to souls, nourishing them in the Word of God. This is encouragement to everyone who reaches out into the world and tries to gather the lost in, that you're trying to bring that life-giving power of the gospel and feed the milk of the Word to those that are still in their sin. This, this is encouragement to us, beloved, only to the church is this duty and privilege given. And then finally, we have her beauty desired. Her beauty is desired. Verse 6, he says, Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of Myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. He repeats what she said in chapter 2, verse 17. Where she said, until the day break and the shadows flee away, turn, my beloved, and be thou like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains of Bether. Now, there she has a prayer, a desire, that as she sits in the darkness, before the day breaks, that he would turn to her and be like a roe or a young heart upon the mountains, plural, of Bether. We talked about separation. These mountains depict separation. They there are hindrances between her and him, and she, she prays that he would turn and skip over those mountains and come to her amidst the darkness in which she finds herself. And he repeats these words, Until the day break and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain singular of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. Here you have a, a, a similar yet a very different scene. We have discussed... I'll not go over it again, how we argue the significance of myrrh and frankincense. Chapter 3, verse 6, you find both of them mentioned. But in short, myrrh signifies the perfect life of Christ, and frankincense signifies the death of Christ. And so what he says to her, look at it. Yes, amidst this darkness, until the daybreak and the shadows flee away, I will get me to the mountain of myrrh and to the hill of frankincense. There's a specific mountain where he leads to. A specific mountain where he goes, it's not the mountains of Bether, it's not these, this vast range of mountains that, that separate and divide, it's one particular mountain. And beloved, when you go through Scripture, you'll find when mountain is used singular and someone is ascending one mountain, it's often to commune with God. Whether it's Moses or whether it's Abraham, it, it, it's God coming down upon a mountain to meet with men. It's going up one mountain so a soul may engage with God. And here we have one mountain, but here it's reflected in relation to the gospel. 
a mountain of myrrh and the hill of frankincense, it is a place where we see the perfect life of Christ and the death of Christ. He leads to the place of the gospel. He leads to the cross. He takes her to Calvary. He takes her right there. It's on that mountain where communion will be enjoyed. It's on that mountain where they will, they will sense the intimacy of the relationship. It's on that mountain where their, their souls will be drawn together. And they will sense that, that, that deep engagement of fellowship like no other. And beloved, that is exactly what's happening this morning. The table of the Lord is like this mountain of myrrh and hill of frankincense. It's where the Lord draws us afresh to Calvary. It's where Christ brings that soul to engage with himself afresh upon the merit of the finished work. Where he gets our mind's eye to see by faith the shedding of the blood, the sacrifice for sin. That which Christ did for sinful wretches like us so that he might present us a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing. He brings us there. He brings us there today. All that He has done for us. He brings us there where we have the most intimate fellowship. We, we sing about it, don't we? Jesus, keep me near the cross. We talk about being in the shadow of the cross. Christians throughout the ages have understood that there is this perpetual need to be at the foot of the cross, to consider the work of Christ, to contemplate what He has done, to have their minds drawn away to consider the love of God manifest in the dying of the Son of God. And that is what is here. Until the day break, until life is over, until it's all done as far as this season of life is concerned, we will continually need to get to that mountain to consider what happened there. And to meditate on the doing and the dying of the one who loves us and gave himself for us. I trust the Lord will help us this morning to meditate on these things as we approach his table together. Let us pray. Lord, we pray that you will bless what we have considered this morning. We don't admit that it's easy always understanding the imagery here, but we've sought to reflect upon how elsewhere in Scripture thou hast shown thyself to be and what thou hast taught us about the beauty of the church. We're thankful, Lord, that it's not an earned beauty in terms of our own earning. It's what Christ has earned for us. And as we read in Psalm 45, it tells us there that the king's daughter is all glorious within. Lord, we would never say that of ourselves. And yet this is what thou hast done for us. Help us as we meditate in these things. Help us as we come to the table to have our hearts rightly prepared Help us to think by the help of the Spirit 
upon what Christ has accomplished on our behalf. In Jesus' name.